If you've been listening to my show, you know that the importer on the back of the bottle is one of the surest ways to guarantee a quality bottle of wine. That's why I'm so excited to tell you about Taub Family Selections. Taub Family Selections is a dynamic, fourth-generation, family-owned wine import company with a truly incredible portfolio of fine wines from 11 countries. These wines not only embody the unique terroir in which they are produced, but the passion and integrity of each family member involved from vineyard to table. Notable estates include Mastro Berardino, Bertani, Travlini, Ferrari, Coldorcia, Trimbach, Jean-Luc Colombo, Jean-Michel Jarin, among many other renowned producers. They also have from Bordeaux, Lafitte Rothschild from the left bank, and on the right bank, they have Chateau Lafleur. I'm telling you, these guys have it all. To find out even more, go to TaubFamilySelections.com. That's T-A-U-B, FamilySelections.com. Do you know about Grapes, the wine company? Grapes is celebrating its 25th anniversary this year. They offer a remarkable selection of wines and spirits. The breadth and depth of their inventory is astounding. Add in an unparalleled level of expertise and customer service, and you could see why other retailers are green with envy. Through their extensive and ever-growing network of relationships from around the world, Grapes, the wine company, offers the opportunity to discover the newest and most exciting wines and revisit the classics from both established and emerging wine regions. Grapes features a selection of over 4,000 wines and spirits. The Wall Street Journal has called Grapes one of the most influential retailers in the U.S., and it rings true to this day. Wine is a joyful thing, and Grapes the Wine Company exists to connect people with the choices bottles. Ordering is super simple using their easy-to-navigate website, or go old school and call to speak with one of their wine consultants for an in-depth feedback for your wine and spirits needs. Call them at 914-397-9463. That's 914-397-WINE. Or email your general inquiries to info at grapesthewineco.com. That's info at grapes, T-H-E-W-I-N-E-C-O.com. You'll be glad you did. Hey, I'm MJ Taller, also known as a black wine guy. I went from being a totally obsessed wine newbie to becoming the world's first ever African-American fine and rare wine auctioneer in less than three years. In this show, I'll be talking to the mavericks, the philosophers, the players, and the deep thinkers who inhabit the world of wine. They'll share their experiences on how they made it, but more importantly, how they failed and got back up again. So grab a glass and let's get to it. This is the Black Wine Guy Experience. Hey everybody, what's up? It's your boy MJ. Welcome to the Black Wine Guy Experience. My guest today is an artist, an art historian, a wine collector, a salesman, an importer, a father, and the founder of Von Boden, Stephen Bitteroff. Stephen came to NYC in the early 00s to get his PhD in Northern Renaissance painting during which time his fascination with wine was born. In 2005, he landed a job as a salesperson at the newly opened Crush Wine and Spirits, which at the time was one of New York City's sleekest wine stores. In 2012, he became an importer of German wines, which led to his founding of Von Boden. Von Boden is a small company focusing on small growers. The heart of the portfolio is clearly in Germany, though they are proud to represent small states in Austria, France, and the U.S. He later 
founded Riesling Fire, no uh, association with the Fire Festival, uh, an annual event that seeks to celebrate German Rieslings to provide a greater context for the incredible history of winemaking and to reemphasize the historical importance of terroir. Welcome, Stephen. Um, thank you, man. Good, good to be here. Glad you're here. I mean, we're trying to get this together for a minute, and uh, <clears throat> you know, we 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 uh, I met you through. Uh, Robert Duntis, who has this amazing orbit of amazing sure. people. Um, tell everybody about the wine we're drinking this afternoon. So, man, you know, what is the one wine to to bring? And I think one of when people think about German wines, maybe uh, there's a there's a deep history there. Right. And, you know, this is not a, this is not necessarily a, an attribute of quality. Certainly there's regions that were founded yesterday that make profound wines. Mm -hmm. But it is cool. And again, my background is art history and a little bit of cultural history. So. I am certainly drawn in a little bit to the, the lore and the history and that kind of, uh, yeah, that that cultural trail of uh, of German wine, especially. So this is a 1968 uh, Schloss Reinhardshausen uh, cabinet. So the cool thing about this, you know, not to get too dorky, because a lot of this is like ultra dorky. No, get, get ultra dorky. Well, <clears throat> so it's, we need we need that. We're gonna have a lot of fun. All but, right, all right. But you know, there's some people who like they want they want you know who are like they're tuning in for like. A, a quick lesson on German. So go oh for God. it. Oh, God. Well, <laughs> man, how many hours is this again? <laughs> Good Lord. So this is a cabinet, uh, but it's from 1968. So the 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 genre, the product cut that we know of and we see a lot in, in stores these days, cabinet, which is, you know, this kind of light off dry wine. Yeah. It's it's historical. It's historical. Kind of founding was were the most special wines that were literally held in the cabinet, like in the safe part of the cellar. Okay, they would be in, and it was normally spelled with a C, and it was kind of like the, um, you know, the treasure chest. So the great wines would be the cabinets. They weren't the most, least expensive. They were in fact the greatest. So this is a cabinet. Curiously, it's spelled with a K. Yeah. Uh, but it is in 1968, which is before the wine law created this. So it is a cabinet. In theory, this is a very special wine in the cellar and has no relationship to the cabinet of, that we know today. Oh. So you can find old bottles of German wine that will say Auslese cabinet. So it means Auslese, like the special Auslese, right? Yeah. So this is this is. So that. I, let's do this before we get into like your backstory because um, break down German wines, like the levels. So you got cabinet, trokin. I mean, break it down for everybody, please. Yeah, okay. Quick. So I'll, I'll preface this with – with the uh, with the beginning that things are really complicated right now in German wine because they're mm. they're transitioning they they've been transitioning for <laughs> about five or six decades so it's uh, it never ends but basically you have dry wines so most I would say if you uh, go and you see a reason that says trocken that means it's dry trocken is the German word for dry but there are a lot of wines too that just don't say anything they'll yeah. just say gobbledygook in German and Riesling. And they don't say anything. I would bet 99% of the time, if the wine does not say Cabinet, Spätlese, Auslese, either of those three words, and it just says gobbledygook word and then Riesling, it's probably dry. So there's a huge movement now going to not, to not having to uh, articulate the fact the wine is dry. We're only going to articulate it if the wine is not dry, right? Yeah, so yeah. you're going to see more and more what I call kind of the new school of German wines. It'll just have a word. Probably the vineyard site. Let's say it says Ellergrub or Sonnenur or Himmelreich or one of the, you know one of these very Germanic and kind of cool sounding words. And if it doesn't say anything else, it's probably dry. The other thing it can have is a little GG, 
means grossest Quebec. That's the Grand Cru dries. That you that way you also know it's dry. A little trick of the trade is to look at the alcohol. So in other words, if the wine is 12 or 12.5 or 13, the higher the alcohol, the more sugar that's been fermented, the more likely it's dry. So you can almost always, if the wine is 12%, even 11.5 in certain cases, but 12% or higher, it's dry. So that's that covers a little bit the dry thing. And then from there, really, it's Cabinet, Spätlese, Auslese. And those are what, what they call the Pradikats. And these, as I said, were invented in 71. And they refer a little bit to historical practices that have been going on. So at the bottom of the hierarchy is the cabinet. Mm -hmm. This is the wine that's the lightest, the freshest. It will have a little bit of residual sugar. It will definitely be off dry, but it should be super light, really high in acid, like super zingy. And not to get too dorky about it, but like it almost will taste dry. Like the acid will be so extreme that once you get past the the fruit, right, the initial fruit, yes, it all it will end almost bitter sometimes. Yeah. That is a cabinet, and that was completely invented in 1971. They just wanted. This, these sort of wines existed clearly, mm -hmm. but they just gave that name cabinet because the cabinet, cabinet kind of, you know, before we were talking sort of meant reserve. Mm -hmm. So it was almost like they co-opted the reserve for the cheapest one just to make them, you know, easier to sell. As, as they do here. As they do. Exactly. As, as like, exactly. Look at that private reserve wow. wine for six ninety nine. Exactly. Wow, it must be good. Man, but it's a reserve and it's private. Exactly. <laughs> but, but somehow I can get it at this big bottle retail store. Crazy. It's amazing. So that was cabinet. <laughs> then when you go above that, you go to Spätlese. And this is where it gets interesting and or dorky and or both is that Spätlese is just a practice. It literally means harvesting late. Yeah. And so spate lasers were not a category. They were just a methodology, right? right. It's like, we're going to harvest late and we're probably going to get a little botrytis. And so the wine's going to be a little sweet and a little kind of brown and blah, blah, blah. And so that was spate laser. And so with the 71 wine, wine law, they officially codified it, meaning it had to be this ripe. And at the end of the day, as things happen, now it, it really has no reference to practice. You can pick spate lasers early in the year. You can do whatever, but mm -hmm. that's where it comes from. Mm -hmm. And then aus laser is the ripest category. So we're with each level, we're getting a little sweeter, a little like a little richer, right? We're going from skim milk to whole milk sort of mm -hmm. dig. So Auslese means to harvest out. Lese is the German word for harvest. So it's to harvest out. And so this is literally they're taking berries out of the clusters and picking ones that have a little more botrytis or a little overripe. And they're making these more unctuous dessert wines, right? So I think for the modern palate, Auslese is kind of where the dessert wine picks up. Right. Uh, right. But Spätlese will be, you know, will be sweet. So a lot of people at this point, as palates get drier and drier, and that becomes kind of a, a bit of a fad, uh, more and more Spätlese are like, whoa, a little too sweet. And Cabinet right now, I think from at least the fashion standpoint, Cabinet is has that nice balance because they're dryish. They're so angelic, but they have great acidity. So, you know, the pendulum of fashion, man, swings back and yeah. forth. It's like yep. skinny jeans and bell bottoms. And right now we're- uh... I never wore no skinny jeans. But bell bottoms? That means you wore bell bottoms. Uh, I didn't even wear bell bottoms. I missed the bell bottoms. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Um, I had girlfriends who wore them because they came, because Janet brought them back in 90 in the That's Way Love Goes video. So, <laughs> and uh, it was a delight, that group delight. Miss Lady Keir wearing the But anyway. Um, well, cool. That was a quick little, we'll, we'll dive into some more stuff there. Um, thanks for that. Um, so, man, let's start at the beginning. Where did you yeah. grow up? Where are you from? So, I grew up in Pittsburgh. Okay. Yeah. So, a little. It's a bizarre kind of a biography, but my father's Austrian. So my father was born in Vienna. Oh, um, wow. And then he came, he moved in the, in the late fifties. The family went to South America. So he grew up in Caracas. My mother's from an old school Irish Catholic family in Detroit. 
So she was the youngest of five, and I think her one goal in graduating, she was the first to go to college. She, she graduated, and everyone, old school, like, you know, Irish family, everyone lived within a quarter of a mile, yep. and they all had a yep. lot of children young. And, and my mom looked at a, a map and just got the job furthest away. And so she flew to <laughs> – she loves her family, for anyone to say, but uh, wanted a new experience. And of so course, she flew to, to Caracas, yeah, with uh, to teach English. And so she went there. My brother and I were both born there, and then in the uh, in the late '70s, early '80s, we moved back to the U.S. And my dad got a job in uh, working like doing advertising for a steel mill, and like completely arbitrarily landed in Pittsburgh. Wow, that's um, <laughs> not what you're expecting, huh? No, but that's yeah. why I asked that question. Yeah. I mean, wow. So you, I mean, basically you. You at one point you probably you got a Venezuelan passport. You were, I do. Yeah, I have a citizenship. Yeah, yeah. wow, is, that's that's not as uh, not as useful as you think. Yeah, no, not not, not nowadays. <laughs> no. not, not so much. Curiously, I cannot get uh, German or Austrian citizenship. Really? Yes. Even though your father is Austrian, reason, and he was born there, right? He was born in okay. Austria, okay. but during the Anschluss. So my father was born in forty one. Okay. So it was part of the German Empire, the Nazi yeah, Empire. Yes. Uh, and so he was a German citizen. And then they left in the 50s, so they weren't running from anything. Uh, there was just no work. Vienna was bombed out. There was no work to be had. So they heard that there was work in Brazil. They went to Brazil. There was no work in Brazil. They went to Venezuela. My grandfather hated it. My grandfather was like very old school European in all the cliched ways. Like he had tea, he had coffee, cafe and kuchen is a thing in like old school Germany. At three o'clock, you have a like something sweet and a cup of coffee and like that's it, man. Like. It isn't the case anymore, but even growing up, we'd go there three o'clock, everything closes. Everyone goes for coffee and coffee. So so dope. My grandfather People was- People used to know how to oh, live, dude, man. I mean, <laughs> for real, right? They used it's... to know how to live, man. Uh, <laughs> and so he would do that. And so he went to Venezuela and like couldn't learn Spanish. It just like he felt like a fish out of water. So he, within six months, he was gone so that my, my, um, my grandmother and grandfather got divorced. My grandfather then went back to Vienna, blah, blah, blah. And my grandmother loved it. She was like, woo, she liked the weather, <laughs> everything. And she was super happy there. And my father grew up there and was really, really liked it too. Uh, but basically, my father then is, is living in Venezuela and is, is, you know, is a, to some extent a Venezuelan. He, he always said he felt more, he sort of felt out of place everywhere, to be honest. But yeah. It was a huge thing for him and really where he grew up. He identified, I think, more with that than with Europe. And so his company, it's very similar to what was happening here, is not to get too political, but as things were getting more nationalist in Venezuela, yep. they were like, well, we don't want that many Europeans. You yep. know, we The fewer Europeans were hired, the more Venezuelans is better. So my father, and he honestly didn't give a fuck, I don't think. So he like reneged on his German citizenship, became a Venezuelan citizen six months before I was born. Ah. So when I was born... My father was not a German citizen, and there's just like no, no way. No, so that's no way. it. Well, that's crazy. I Bizarre. mean, like, because I know, like, if you're Irish, I know, and like your grandparents, I, I might are from be able, Ireland, to, I might be able to get yeah, it through you, that. You, you, yeah, there's, there's like you, you, you can get citizenship. But, it, but it's my father was born in Vienna. Yeah, all my cousins are still in Vienna. My yeah. entire family is both in all in Vienna, and then the other half is all in Detroit. <laughs> it's really bizarre. Um, well, I mean, it's it's beginning to, you know, make sense. Your fascination with history and things like that because you just you like that's a time in the world like people didn't travel and live in other countries like your 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 family is in an, sure. an elite space and 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 doing that you yeah. know going across continents and um yeah but, it's just gonna that's gonna inform a lot yeah uh, but honestly it was you know just the elite part was not there no but i mean elite yeah. and like like not like just that they traveled not yeah, like yeah. they were they were wealthy yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah. like 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 
people. I mean, shit, people, people in America still don't even freaking travel. Dude, Europe, it's amazing. Right? You know what I'm saying? So, like, yeah. like, when, I think like of, when I think about my father and what he went in that generation, so my father was born in 41. He says he remembers kind of like playing in the rubble of Vienna and like they would like tanks yeah. blown up and they'd like make toys out of them. And then they went to Italy. Uh, tried to get work there and they took a steamship and they hear these stories, man, this steamship and they had like those rooms in the belly with no windows yep. and there was like a huge storm and my father is, so this is mid fifties. So he's like 14, like old enough to remember this shit, yeah. right? And just like in this ship vomiting all over because they're in some huge storm and they can't, like no one's allowed to go out and you know, they're they're sort of in the steerage, right? As it were, they're done. And it's just like, that's it. And then you get to Venezuela, you get to Brazil first and they don't really speak any Spanish. Man, yeah, and that's the shit I mean, they went I mean, through. Like, that's what I'm saying. Wow. Like, it's, they went to Brazil. Like, it's really. <laughs> in the 50s. It's really intense, you know? From Vienna, right? Yeah. And then, I mean, that's all. I mean, like, to find work. Yeah, yeah. You it's, know. It's intense. And my father then, you know. Picked up Spanish as you do when you're 15, right? I mean, yeah. you have to. That's yeah. it. Yeah. So he spoke fluent. My father was very much an autodidact. He he did not. He graduated high school, but he did not go to university. But he was just like a brilliant kind of thinker person who uh, clearly I have not inherited it because I just use the phrase thinker person. But he was no. very <laughs> smart, fluent, perfectly fluent in German, Spanish. English was his third language. He spoke it probably better than I do. And he was just one of those guys that like – Picked up everything. Even when computers came around, my father, like in the end of his, he had a relatively like unsuccessful uh, marketing career, mostly because he just like didn't put up with anyone's bullshit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he was so into computers and taught himself everything. And he, we were the one family where like the young kids would go to dad to be like, dad, how does this compute? Like he knew it all up to the day he died. Like he was, he was my tech guy. He helped me design the Von Bowen website. Amazing. Yeah. It was, Amazing. Uh, Amazing. And Amazing. I, I, meanwhile, can barely like sharpen a pencil. You know? so <laughs> I did not inherit that, that technological side. So what was Pittsburgh like? Because Pittsburgh's like now this hipster city. Yeah. Um, which great food scene, great food wine scene. Like what was it like back then when you were? It's, Pittsburgh is like has a little bit, had a bit of a chip on its shoulder. And we grew up just outside of Pittsburgh. And mm -hmm. it was like a middle class suburban kind of upbringing that was honestly like I – Here's the honest truth. I can't say anything bad about it because yeah. it was like, I don't know, I rode my bike and there yep. were trees and like mm -hmm. I had good friends. and mm -hmm. But there's also – I got out of there as soon as I could. Not I, – I don't think anything – not nothing that Pittsburgh did, but more that just, you know, you want – there's an American thing. This is interesting compared to, to Europe and maybe this is part of the wine fascination. I've thought about this quite a bit. Like we talk about terroir, right? And yep. it says wines come from a place. But man, I don't – with people, we have that too, I think. Yeah. And the American psychology is always to like to move, to like find your own world, right? To get yeah. out there. And both my, my brother left uh, and went to California and I went and went to New York. And I wasn't conscious at the time of like, but I never would have stayed in Pittsburgh. I just wouldn't have. I don't yeah. know. It like yeah. to, have to prove something to myself or to us. It is. I don't know. Right. Yeah. It's like that manifest destiny. Yeah. And with, with the Europeans, like, you know, most of my growers – they would Our family's been here for 800 years yeah. and like in a creepy way they yeah. would they, they take over the bedrooms that their parents were in right yeah. the parents move yep. and there is this just like unquestioned connection to the land yep. which i do think certainly unconsciously before i was conscious of it i'm extraordinarily envious of no i to, agree to have like I agree. even moving out of like new york when i finally moved to new jersey to have like a little crappy piece of land i could put my fingers in the dirt after 20 some years of renting yep. it was like kind of an experience. It yep. was like, fuck, yep. man, like just to have something, you know, yep. it, was, it was meaningful. And I think about, yeah, families that go back, like you said, 800 years, it's like, wow, that's yep. crazy. Yep. Right. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, 
you know, we had a <clears throat> oh, what was it? What was super handsome Italian guy's name? <laughs> <laughs> that could, that could be any number of Italians. Scavino. Yeah. Yeah, Scavino. Uh, like Luigi, Lu- Luigi Scavino, uh, uh, his son, who's Paolo's his uncle, but yeah. and he was saying they live in like Barolo. He's like, it's so small. We're yeah. everybody. He's like, it's three hundred people. Everybody's my cousin. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I mean, he travels in New York, but like he's like, like you said, like they, when you talk about they have a sense of place, and we don't we don't have that here, you know. So, um, so was there wine? on the table growing up in your house yeah there was so my it's funny like people oftentimes like, lorenzo oh, by the way just lorenzo, that was on the top of producers looking up she's bothering yeah, sorry yeah, man yeah. so no, yeah no. so there was wine on the table there was but but it's not what you think right people are often like oh your dad is austrian so that's why you're you know to reason it's like no 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 no. my father like i said was more kind of more south american than he was oh, european yeah. and so he liked big red wines and my father was also very practical and so he he would always have like if we had wine it was the 999 or like 799 liter of australian wine and when i got very into wine you know he would kind of he'd taste my stuff and he'd be like meh like i don't like it and then he'd put this down and be like why is this better and i'm like man it's not better like it's just different right wine is just like art you know yep. your kids drawing is not necessarily worse than a picasso it's just different and there's reasons we value this shit and some of it is has meaning and other other parts don't so I never had any – so we grew up with wine. It was definitely a part of it. There's an Austrian tradition called a Heurigen, which okay. is this like – it's usually little farms that like they have some grapes and they make a little wine, but then they have a restaurant too. And they make fresh wine. You go there and you just kind of – it's like a beer garden sort of vibe, right? You drink a lot of wine, but it's not really about the wine. It's about getting drunk and eating a bunch. <laughs> uh, and so it's – you know, it's convivial. It was always a part of like how people got together, but there was no – there was no like, you know, erudite kind of study of wine in my yeah. house for sure. Not. Yeah. It was more just like wine. And if they didn't have wine, it would be beer. And if they didn't have beer, it would be cocktails. And like that was it. You know, it was, there was always alcohol on the table. Let's put it that way. Yeah. yeah. Um, what kind of food did you – because your mom was Irish. What kind of food did she Yeah. Did you I mean like... honestly, she made more South American food like carne okay. machada, uh-huh. a lot of beans and rice, a lot of, uh, a lot of like – a lot of shredded meats and pork. We had yuca growing up, which I think now you get – do you know yuca? Well, of like course. A, yeah, I yeah. mean I do now, but yeah. like, I didn't know yuca until I was like in like 20 or so. Dude, it's – Because I, I – and that's because I – friends were from costa rica otherwise yeah. it would not have so that's like in the early 90s like but people now you can go to any hip restaurant yeah you could fry or whatever like 80 80 i mean yeah mid like early 80s to 80, like the entire 80s we had yuca yes yeah, so that that's 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 uncommon and you had to go it was interesting too so i like i said i had cancer growing up and so i was in the hospital a lot and across the i still remember from the children's hospital there was like a i think it was I think it was a Vietnamese kind of um, grocery store and they had it and it was like the only place in Pittsburgh. And so it'd always be like, I'd go get treatments and my mom would be like, all right, then we'll get you after. And I'd be like, awesome. That was it. Like, they're so intertwined in my head of like going wow. to the hospital and then getting yucca and like, yeah. So more than that, she then later learned a good amount of German cooking, but more from my grandmother, my grandfather, my, my father, I think if you were like, like what's his final meal? Yep. He would definitely do something like carne machado. It wouldn't be like potato dumplings. Wow. Again, it was more, you know, yeah. your formative years. He yeah, left yeah. when he was like, whatever, 10, 15. Like mm-hmm. those are the years you you associate more with food, you know? Yeah, yeah. So growing up, I mean, like you, you mentioned, like you had leukemia. Like how, what was, how do you deal with that as a, as a, a, a youth? You don't. 
you know, you deal with it in your teens. That's when, unfortunately, you deal with it. So, like, yeah, I had it four, God, four to 14, basically. I had four to, like, six. You'd have to ask my mom a lot of yeah. this I've, like, put away. Of course. But, like, I had a bad, uh, bad remission and then went through it again. And, like, the second time you go through it, they're like, they fuck you up, right? It's right. like the first time it's like, well, you know, we'll give you this, right. these drugs and blah, blah, blah. And then when you get it again, they're like, all right, now we nuke you. Yeah. So I got nuked and it was, yeah, man, it's weird. But as a kid, you're just like, oh, I just want to ride my bike. I, I mean, don't care. Yeah, you it's know? probably better to go through it as probably because you, you, you just, the consciousness yeah. of. The bad, like losing your hair. But is yeah, like, that must have oh, been like gnarly. That's a really kid, embarrassing. Because, you know, because kids are just not understanding. Dude, it's the, I still remember this like girl on the bus. Like I'd I'd buzz my hair before because it was starting right. to fall out in patches and like and you know I'm just sitting there I'm like hoping no one notices me and I'm just uh, and she like is sitting behind me and she leans over and she's like I know you lost your hair because you have leukemia and that's all she said and I was uh, just yeah, like oh uh, yeah, great but fucking Thanks. devastating I, 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 you know like, what the fuck is that but it's like one of these things you live in your little world you're like no one's noticing no one's noticing right. no and you know and just Everybody pointing noticed. it out yeah yeah, yeah, yeah it's like devastating but yeah I mean I think to some extent honestly the most formative thing in my not even, I think, I believe it was the most formative thing for me. It's it's what taught me everything. It's why I came to New York. It's why I tried the art thing. It's why I yeah, decided make, to Yeah, it would make you appreciate. You're just like, man, I don't know. It's, it's, life is worth living. And, you know, and it probably makes you a bit more of a risk taker than yeah. if you did not. Well, yeah. That's uh, um, so, um, where did you go to college? Penn State. Wow. Yes. So said, okay. So Penn State. Here's here's how. It, 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 lying. It, oh God. Here's how it went down. <laughs> I was like, because I, you know, how I'm dealing with leukemia is like exactly. at, at this age. So I'm like, fuck no, I'm not going to college. Like I just don't care about it. Right. I'm gonna like I'm gonna I don't do a bunch of drugs and write the Great American Novel. Exactly. I'm gonna be Hunter S. Yep, Thompson. Exactly. Yes. Like, and my parents are like, yes, you are, and you're paying for it. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, fuck. So I got into Penn State, and it was like $1,200 a semester. And I was like, uh, like, whatever. Okay. And, and honestly, I wasn't, I could have said no. And like, but I didn't, I also like, I had a lot of plans of what I wasn't going to do. Yep. But I didn't have any plans of what I was going to do. Yeah. So I was like, when they were insistent, I was like, okay. And so I went to Penn State. And Penn State was, is, right, it's 40,000 people. It's. There's like it's a whole city. Oh, uh, it's a whole city. Yeah. And there's a T-shirt that's like something like "We're a sports town with a school." Yeah, you know what I mean. Yep. Not like we're a school with a sport. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. And I w was not into sports. Like why? this was my dark period, right? Like wearing a lot of black and just not. Uh, I never like had like mascara, but, period. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> I was definitely that vibe. Uh, I never went to one football game. I sold all my tickets for good amounts of money. I'm, I know, I like, like like Penn State athlete. Like you said it's like, and I worked in cafes and book all the cliched shit. Uh, wow. And was super alienated, honestly, had no friends. And then I met uh, my professor, so an art history professor of Dutch uh, Dutch Renaissance art, Claudia Swan, who's a professor at the University of St. Louis now, who was like, honestly, saved me. Was like, became my best friend. I just saw her two weeks ago. We're still in touch. Amazing. Uh, and she was like, without her and without that connection to something bigger than like my own complaining about my own life, right? Mm -hmm. uh, who knows? I probably, you know would have been a worse artist. I don't know. Who knows what would have happened, but that that's what I was talking about earlier. That was the moment I was like, fuck, okay. Like, I care about something other than negating everyone else, right? Yeah, yeah. And that was yeah. that was my access. So Penn State, I have to say, loved it. <laughs> Claudia and I would just like, you know, drink uh, drink 40s and hang out. <laughs> just seriously. There's not many, but like my kids, I introduced them recently to her and they're uh -huh. like, is it normal for you to be best friends with your college professor? And I was like, 
I don't think so, but yeah. you know, everyone has their own path. Exactly. It's, it's all good. Yeah, no, that's I'm I'm still really good friends with uh one of my uh law school professors. I was a researcher and like we we but that's not common. Yeah. Um and so was hers like an introductory class and then you liked it and then you kind of latched on? Exactly. Cuz yeah. yeah, yeah. And I had the you know, my father was like I said the autodidact. My father could kind of do anything. Like he played 16 different musical instruments, never having had any classes in it. He could draw incredibly well. He was super good at engineering and all this kind of weird thinky stuff. Uh, and so I got at least the drawing part from him. Mm -hmm. And so always art was like a very strong part of my identity. Right. But I'm too middle, I don't know, middle-class kind of bourgeois where it's like, that's not like an artist isn't really what you can do. So, so yeah, the, the art yeah, history yeah, yeah. was like, oh, this is something respectable. Right. You can get a job. You can become a professor. Yeah, right? exactly. yeah, but like, but like, to, yeah. like middle class, you're like, nobody's no, and, I mean, you to be an artist. No. And like, you know, and I grew up in Pittsburgh and was certainly very aware of like Warhol uh, and the kind of artistic world there. Carnegie yeah. has a huge museum right. yes, there. So yes, it was a big yes. part of my, my upbringing was going to the Carnegie seeing, but like those. And you said it right, by the way. People, What's that? It's Carnegie. Carnegie, yeah. Yeah, people yeah. go Carnegie. Carnegie. It's Carnegie. Yeah. He, uh, so that was a huge part of it, and like, but it just wasn't practical. So the art history, yeah, it was like you had to do, you know, art history, blah, 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 like a general class. And that was kind of like the hook where I was like, fuck, that's cool. Yeah. That's interesting. Totally. So um, when did you intern at the Institute Art Institute of yeah. Chicago? So that was right after. And this was when, so I do my three years, I my three years undergrad. Four years, I guess, but three years as an art history guy. Graduate. And then I basically, I through Claudia, I get, you know, introductions and kind of opening up the world of like various things to do after. I knew I didn't want to go right to grad school, one, because I like couldn't afford it. Uh, so I'm like, I'll take a year off. I'm going to work a bit, you know, like kind of get prepped and then, you know, and kind of weigh the, the options. And so it was basically like once I figured it out, there was this uh, art inst there was a internship at the Art Institute of Chicago. They had a really good collection of Gerhard Richter and a bunch of other artists I was very interested in. It just kind of made sense. And honestly, I applied for it and never really – both never really thought I would get it. And obviously at that age, you're like, of course I'll get it. Right. right. Catch 22, right? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And I got it. Uh, and it was a paid internship. It was amazing. Oh, it's amazing. Oh, dude. So I went to Chicago three months. It was really my first time just kind of like living as an adult, right? Mm -hmm. And I had some like really – tiny kind of dirty apartment in the Ukrainian village. And it was just like such a, a beautiful formative time. Uh, and then I, then I kind of during that summer figured out I wanted to go to New York. And so basically, yeah, spent the kind of winter trying to figure out how the hell to get to New York. I had no friends here, no access, no knowledge, but I wanted to go to Columbia and I knew a professor and I was like, I'll just fucking make it happen. And that's it. So I moved to New York and like, just, I don't know. My first place, I was thinking about it as I was walking here, was 29th Street and 6th Avenue. Mm. And I rented a room from this old lady who was who, who was just kind of like, it was such a great initial experience in, the, in New York. You know, it's like I knew enough about New York, but didn't really know anything. Yeah. And she was like one of the first generation uh, women to go through Columbia um, Journalist School. Oh, wow. And she wow. was just like a New York intellectual, political-minded, like just activist. I mean, she was and and crazy as the day is long. 
So I was doing like I was waiting on tables. I was doing research for a writer. I was doing like anything to pay the bills, basically. Yeah, I read that like you had like oh, the dude. classic move to New York. Like you had three jobs. Yeah, dude, it was and, nuts. And, um, so yeah, and she, walk and everybody through that story. <laughs> she would come home and I'd be like at five o'clock. Like I'd be finishing up my day job. Like I would go to the library and do research, and I'd be getting ready to go to the uh, to this the restaurant I worked at. And she'd come home like five o'clock. Have a fucking gallon of vodka and she smoked fucking constantly and she just like sit down pour a huge thing of vodka straight up out of a plastic gallon jug light a cigarette and then she'd look at me as i was kind of getting ready to go and just like like to fuck with me like we would she would just try to get me in fights about anything it was this was 98 or so so like the clinton impeachment things yeah, were going okay, on okay. and i you know and I, just to play devil's advocate, I always kind of try and find a center. I was like, I don't know. I guess he lied under oath. That's bad. And she just like would vomit anger at me about like, wow, the, you know, the conservatives and Clinton's done more for blah, 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 blah. And it was just like it was my first experience of being like yelled at by brilliant, crazy people in a way that was like awesome. I was like, yeah. I love New York. Like you just have people are so opinionated and like in your face. And not in a, like she wanted me to fight back, you know. It wasn't yeah, like yeah, she no, just totally. wanted that like yep, yep. sparring, right? I loved it. I was like, man, I'm, like, I'm home. <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. <laughs> I still think about her a lot. <laughs> so, um, you're you're like working three job, studying, making art. Um, how did you come to enter the wine business? That's a, so the short story is that I was doing no short story. Yeah, all right. No well, so I'm at this point like I'm starting to sell work. Okay. So I'm I'm doing these big drawings of rabbits. I'm okay. like I'm starting to sell a few people. Like, well, I'll take a rabbit. And I'm like, okay. So I start selling a little bit of work, and then uh, and then I get a gallery in New York. So I have a gallery and like oh, wow. I'm on in the best year possible. I'm making I'm selling enough work to like barely survive. Right. So I'm always supplementing with other crap. So it's not success in like a you know, like, well, oh, like hang by the infinity pool. Uh, <laughs> so like I'm getting about, I'm starting to sell shit. And then it's more and more studio time because, you know, and being a writer or a visual artist is a really, unless you're choreographing with other people, it's a pretty solitary, lonely thing. Right. Right. And so uh, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife was just like, man, you're in the studio. You're just like, you're getting a little kooky because you're just like alone all the time in your head and blah, blah. And being an artist is a very difficult thing because you you either have so much – you kind of have to have so much confidence to keep doing this and then it always bottoms out and you're like this is – you know, this, staring at the same drawing. In one minute, you're like, I'm a genius. This is going to change the world. <laughs> and then 10 minutes, you're later like, I'm such a failure. This is horrible, right? And it's just this continuous oscillation. And so she just said, listen, get the fuck out of the studio, man. Like for a few hours a day, go do something. And okay. like, what else do you like? And I was like, man, I don't like, I don't really like or know anything. And she's like, you drink a lot. I was like, that's true. <laughs> I did drink a lot of wine. I've gotten very into wine in the last, you know, call it five years. Some coming in New York, you're working in restaurants, you're exposed to a lot okay, of yeah, things, so right? That, yeah, so that's This was honestly the first time okay. that it was beyond the $9 liter, right? Yep. Of like Australian Shiraz that my yep. dad would drink. Yep. And so it's just, it was cool. It's like, what the fuck is Chateau Neuf? Never like 13 grand. It's just this whole book opening. You're like, that's insane. So she was like, you know, and I actually knew a decent amount about wine and already had a little bit of like things. I knew enough to know what I liked. So I liked German wines. I liked Barolo. I liked Burgundy. I liked, I liked the things... I liked. And so she was like, get a job. And I happened to read in a wine spectator about crush. Literally, that was it. I was like, I don't know, like why this store's opening. I should go there. And so I went there and got hired. And that was kind of it. And and I remember showing up the first day very proud. 
like yeah i don't know i bought like a shirt with a collar uh <laughs> and i like i stroll in and i'm like all right you know like I don't know, what is the wine business like i assume i'm like I'll stand on the floor and just sell like, you know, sun, like expensive Sancerre's and like some <laughs> burgundies to like very wealthy people coming in and like probably, you know, I'm flying their private jets next week. And uh, the guy looks at me, he's like, all right. So like head back to the stock room, uh, start breaking down the boxes. And I was like, oh. and I called my girlfriend. I was like, um, I, I think I'm a stock boy. <laughs> and, she, and she was so sweet. I, I was 29 maybe. And she was like, I was like, I think I'm a 30 year old stock boy. <laughs> And she's like, sweetie, that's okay. That's okay. You'll be a great stock boy. And I was like, I will. <laughs> exactly. I'm going to break down this cardboard. Do you see how I break down boxes? Oh, my God. That was my first lesson of the wine business is really should be should be called the cardboard business because it is all about taking things out of cardboard and then putting them back into cardboard at some point. That is Ooh, it is the I cardboard like job. You pull things out of cardboard yep. and eventually you might hold it, you might drink it, right. but eventually you put it back into cardboard. And a store like Crush, yeah, like a, like you, you we're talking case buy, so it's going Lots back. of it, yeah. yeah. Um, I've never heard it that way. But also the humility, like I think I think we like we live in an era where people want things now and and like you know that you take a course online or in person and you get a credential and you like okay i know about i'm going to sell wine and just it's not it's not that way yeah the reality of it you is know, is different for sure you know and i think people need to understand you really want to be you need to be in this um I mean, you're in a good spot. I mean, at that point, because it was just to get out the house and the yeah. zen, the zen meditation. You're breaking down. Like my thing, I don't mind that stuff, but I don't like bouncing. Like if I, I'll break down boxes all day, but don't pull me off it because I get in a, I just yeah, get zen sure. about it. You know what I mean? Um, but I, I, I do like your attitude. You're like I'm gonna be the best because I think we need more of that um, because. And I think too, honestly, I, I agree with you. Like the physicality of it, and to this day, is still. You know, I don't call in as many accounts, but even. I mean, when I do, I like that. Like, I don't want to sit. I at this point, I do deal more like in front of computers and spreadsheets yep. and that shit. But man, when I get out and walk and like sweat a little bit, and you have fucking half a case of wine on your back, mm-hmm. and you're late for an appointment, and like, do I take the A or do I like take the C? Like, you know, you're you're going, you're computing all the various routes on the subway, like how you can <laughs> yep. get to the place. You're like, do, uh, do I think I take the third car back? Is it West Fourth Street? I'll be, able, you know, like yep. I yep. love that shit, man. Yep. I love just the the physicality. I liked waiting on tables. I worked in cafes. I was pizza delivery boy. I've washed dishes in the finest establishments from Pittsburgh to State College to New York. Like, I like that sweating a little bit, yeah, you know, hurting yeah. a bit. Yep, is no, a, for sure. A good, a good mental treatment for. You know, Stephen, let's take sanity. it's time for a quick break, um, and then we'll come back and we'll uh, we'll talk some more about uh, how you got started in the wine business. All right, are you ready for another great distributor to look for when shopping for fine wines and spirits? Let me tell you about Independence Wine and Spirits, or IWS. IWS is one of the hot, up-and-coming distributors of fine wines and spirits headquartered in New York City. Like Taub Family Selections, IWS is owned by the Taub family, who have re-entered the New York wholesale market, bringing the family back to its roots in distribution, where they held court from 1951 through 2004. IWS is proud to represent an exceptional portfolio of high-quality, terroir-centric, and historic producers from around the world, including Italy and France, where they have an exciting roster of burgeoning Vinrones from Burgundy that are coming your way soon. They also have domestic producers such as La Coya, Cardinale, Staglin, El Molino, and many more. To learn more about IWS, go to independencewine.com. 
Hey, are you looking to order that special bottle you had on vacation? Uh, do you need to find a bourbon your boss has never tried? How about wrapped bottle gifts for teachers, coaches, or your sales force? Grapes the Wine Company can provide all this and more. They do Zoom tastings, winemaker dinners, wine-driven charity events, seller consultations, and stellar suggestions. They do it all. Did we mention Burgundy? If you left your heart and bone, there's no better stateside destination to shop for red and white Burgundy. Not to mention the great wines of France, Italy, Germany, the U.S., and Spain. That's grapesthewineco.com. Okay, cool. We're back. So they send, they said, okay, here's a box cutter. <laughs> Get in the back, Skippy. Um, but while you were at Crush, you came up with an e-marketing idea for the wines. Um, what, what was that? I mean, so I have to say that was a big part of that program, but it wasn't like, you know, I was like, I think email will be important. All this stuff, what you're saying earlier too about like, you know, kind of putting your shoulder down and working that yep. for sure is a part of it. Yeah. But I also look back and I can't deny that like, it was a lot of it too, man, is just fucking luck. You know, that's the part yeah. that I like about life where you look, you know, people ask me for advice. It's like, man, I, I don't know. Like if I really, I got very lucky, I do think, and I worked for it, but right. it's always 50, 50 at yep. best. Yep. And like around yep. 2000, I started at crush, I think in 05 when it opened and it was just the last of like, yeah, internet marketing and email marketing was coming up. The whole, the collector, I explained, man, time is moving so quickly. And I tell people about, it. I sold the 05 Burgundies. 05, greatest vintage ever. You know, another one of those vintages. Right. But still, you and I sat in the back I, as I like got past uh, the stock boy thing. Because it was stock boy for a good six months. And then it's like I could have some shifts on the floor. And then, and then it, you know, it becomes apparent. You know some things and you should try this. And then you do it and you're semi-successful. So you kind of quickly – if you can – they were very good, I would say, at like recognizing talent. If you And they let you kind of do whatever the fuck you wanted. Like if you make money, you can go do it, right? Yeah. And so, you know, we, I'd sit in there and call people up and just like try and sell them burgundy. And I always – this is 100% truth. Fourier Griot and Clos Saint-Jacques are now two of like the most, you know, illustrious burgundies. And I would call people up in 05 and just be like, all right, I got a package for you. I'll give you like one griot. And that's probably going to be like 280, 280 bucks. I don't know. Maybe it was less at the time. Now, I don't even know what it trades for. Right. Many thousands, I would assume, or at least in four figures. And people would just be like, ah, like, all right, I'll do that. And I'd be like, all right. And like a Clos Saint-Jacques, which is considered it one of the Grand Cru's, even though it's Premier Cru, very like desirable bottle now. But like you would have to, they'd be like, please, like if I'm giving you your griot, take a close Saint Jacques, like take some village level. You really had to like, you mm -hmm. had to sell it, you know? Mm -hmm. And people were like, right, I'll take one of those. Take they were stamp collectors, right? Yep. They were like, I mean this in the absolute greatest term. They were just dorks who love the shit and like and they love to kind of bargain and finagle with you right and yep. you'd be like all right take one griot two close saint jacques but then you have to take six oeshazo and they'd be like oh, i'll take and it was just this like horse trading shit that was fun <laughs> but it was work right yeah, it was yeah, definitely work yeah, yeah. so it was just a it was when things were beginning right and five years later that was not the situation but in 05 it was and so with the email thing it's same thing it was it was not my idea but I was probably one of like 18 students who went to Penn State and did a lot of writing. Penn State at the time, my brother went there too and studied business. And it was a lot of like, you know, you have 60,000 kids there. Like it's a lot of like fill out the dot sort of things, right? The scanners. Yep. Multiple choice was big. And But in art history, you wrote. You had to write. There were little blue books. You bought them for 50 cents. You had to write and turn in your blue book. And so I did a lot of writing. And I don't think I'm like great at writing, but I've worked at it. And so it's like, you know. They would put together an email. And at the time, this is kind of the, the 
the end of Parker's wild influence, right? And again, I was not the person who made this decision. I supported it, and then I challenged it in other times, but we're not going to sell. Everyone was selling like the 999 Shiraz with 99 points, right? It was always points, 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 points. And we made the decision we're not going to use points, and we're just going to tell the story about some of this dorkier Mm. shit. And it was... The, the amount of effort we put into those emails, we would have little sidebars that would be like, here's where Montepulciano di Bruzzo is, and here's why you should care. And blah, blah. there was so much work to these things. And and they did. They caused a little bit of – it was just a new way of doing it. And again, it wasn't just me. It was a, it was three or four really passionate wine dorks, uh, one of who you've had on the show as well, Lyle Fass, was yeah. there at the time too. And like we just did this shit. And it, like, it's not like it changed the world immediately, but – but I do think it kind of set the standard for what what the smarter stores and restaurants or how they talk about wine and how they present it, right? It was talk about the culture, talk about the history, talk about where it comes from and what like the person who makes the wine looks like and what it feels like to fall in the vineyard, right? As opposed to like silky tannins and 98 points, right? Yeah, yeah. And that 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 changed a lot. And I think it it set set the store and myself a little bit on a trajectory because I could write. Yeah. Well, people buy things from people they know, like, and trust, and how you do that is stories. Yeah, you connect through stories. Like I, you know, um, that that's and now that's all you see. I'm like on so many lists. I have to get off them just because I get bombarded. Yeah. Um, but I like to see what I like to see what, how people are writing about wines and 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 they're you know, um, you know, nowadays. You know, there's places I get two emails a day, two offers a day. I know. Um, boom, I, I'm on text lists. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so that's like the way to, and I tell people, if you're not selling wine that way, you're going to get left behind. Cause like it started, like you said, like in the early O's with people emailing people. So like, come on board. It's yeah. not a fad. Yeah. It's 2022. <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah. You know, it's been around for, and it's just, uh, and people are getting more prolific at it. But, uh, yeah. And also, like you said about Lyle, it's also interesting that there are just like stores there's like iconic stores that people come out of that do things you know crush is a newer one but you have you know you have your morel you got yeah. places like acker there's places like if you work there you can write your own and you know and you if you work there not yeah, you, yeah. Know, you can write your own ticket and uh it's just interesting to see these uh these camps um um so <clears throat> How long did you work at Crush? How long did you say? So at Crush? I was there for so I started in 05 and uh left in thirteen. The okay. end of end of twelve. Yeah. Yeah. Thirteen or so is when I think that's correct. Yeah. Is when like I started with Von Bowden basically. Okay. So um started with Von Bowden was uh, uh did you create Von Bowden? Yeah, that's what I guess when I started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean oh, that's cool. So like Ugh. what 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 was going on to make you um, make the jump from uh, retailer to importer, and before you answer that, this this nineteen sixty eight cabinet is so fresh it's and the acid, in, and yeah. it's just beautiful, amazing. Yeah, we should talk like because old wines, everyone thinks you open them and drink them quick because they're going to die. But in certainly some reds, maybe that happens. The fruit gets a little like yeah. kind of matterized feeling. But with with old riesling, I don't know chemistry. I don't really know what I'm talking about, but I drink a lot. And they almost always get better. Even day two, if you don't fuck with them, like, you know, mm. put them in the fridge, put a cork in them, like, day two, they're just like, wow, I don't know what it is. Maybe it, maybe it is just the sulfur. I don't think so. Mm. But, like, man, they, they have energy. They yeah. have energy. Yeah, for sure. 
Um, so yeah, like uh, so the, the Von Bone thing, sales to importer, yeah. man. That's like, yeah. Here's how it goes down, and I, I know, I know why. Like, I don't know how, and it was there's years of my life because I had like my first kid at the same time, and like we moved, and like there's definitely months I don't remember, but it basically was this. There is there's two two highs. There's a lot of highs. One of the highs is knowing like the kind of high-end wine world and like making the sale, right? Making the connection, putting the case of DRC in someone's hands, getting the rare magnum, mm-hmm. doing that thing. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, I had some big sales and like, where you'd just be like, holy hell, right? It's like someone just bought, you know, whatever, a case of wine that's like more than I'm going to make this year. And yep. it's like, there's a there's an adrenaline rush and that's oh, real, right? Sure. It could be with wine, it could be with cars, it could be yep. with real estate, whatever. There's a... Right. There's that. I think wine's different because they're like, because, and especially if you know they're going to drink some of it too, they're not even going to flip it. You're like, damn. That's, and yeah. You're going to drink it. Like, yeah. you can tell who's going to sell it, but like, it, we're like, damn, that's disposable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My parents, when I first moved to New York, and, you know, they'd like, my father spent the last 20 years in Pittsburgh, died in Pittsburgh, and like, you know, I'd go back and be like, ah, you know, like, so you work in a liquor store. I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. I mean, not to like, you know, put a lipstick on a pig. Like, yeah. But at the same time, we're, we're definitely like, selling to high and I'll be like, you know, yeah. I sell people who spend six figures a year on wine. Yeah. They're just like, mic drop, like what? Yeah. They're like, you know, again, we very, it's like Pittsburgh. People don't do that. Yeah. Or like they didn't, maybe they do now. Yeah. I don't know. But it was a whole different world. Right. Right. And so there's going back to that. There's people who get a real high off that. And I enjoyed it. I'm not going to say that like, blah, blah, blah. but then I started traveling to Europe and started going to Germany. And it was always just to be perfectly honest, like the Burgundy trips and the champagne trips were like, there are other people who knew it better, did it better and sure. deserved it more. And they went on those. Sure. And I, you know, you just go down paths and more and more with the German wines. I was like, fuck man, they're so good. They're so under. And I was also like, for the most part broke. Right. So it's like, if people are opening really expensive champagne, please invite me and I will drink it. Right. No problem. <laughs> right. But if I have to like, if I want to get deep into something, I just I can afford. I can't afford it. Mm-hmm. I still can't. Right. Mm-hmm. But German wine, man, for forty bucks at the time, twenty five dollars, you could get the best of the best, and you could open them and experience them. And there was access, and it was like fuck. So I started going to Europe, and then I realized that that place thing. Right. It was so clear to me at an unconscious level mm-hmm. that I liked. My real high was being with the winemakers in the vineyards, and it still is. I've been traveling to to Germany now for. I don't 15 years I've seen the same people a hundred times and it is still every fucking bit as thrilling as it was the first time and I go into Schoenfels with Florian Lauer I go into Palmberg with Uli Stein and I'm just like that I do I'm not a spiritual person but there is something where I'm like fuck I feel a certain connection to the universe that I don't anywhere else Mm. and that's what I want Mm -hmm. and the highs of selling expensive wine were great but they're not the same and I wanted to fucking spend time with winemakers and vineyards and importing just seemed like a way to basically pay for that lifestyle. And that is what I did. And then, like I said before, it's luck. It's just dumb luck. And a little bit, you have to have the courage to jump when you see the door open. But like if the door doesn't open, you jump, you hit the door. Right. right? So there was an influential wine importer uh, that just kind of decided to stop doing it. And in the interim, I had become really good friends with with a number of winemakers who are now, you know, not canonical, but like Florian Lauer was relatively unknown. And I was one of the first people to really get behind him in the U.S. Uli Stein, same thing, you know, for a certain very small percentage of the general audience. Like these are very legendary producers for 99.9% of people never heard them. But yeah. in my little irrelevant world, they're very important. Uh, 
and they became good friends. And so when this come, their importers stopped working, I just basically said, like, I know your wines. I fucking care too much, probably. Mm-hmm. I think I'm a pretty, like, reputable human. Like, I have integrity. Those, and I know your wines. I can talk about them. I think I can sell them. That's like, I'm selling you on me right now. They're like, okay. I'm like, here's, here's the other side. I've never actually imported anything, and I have no idea how to do that. Right, and I don't right. have a company. Right. But that, as far as I can tell, is the only downside. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> All the other shit is great. I just have no idea what I'm doing, and I don't have a company uh, and no money. And they're like, hmm, okay. So they weigh their options and like four reasons that the universe will explain to me at some point maybe. Uh, they said yes. So four growers it started with. It was Florian Lauer, Weiser Kunstler, Uli Stein, and Julian Hart. Those are one, two, three, wow. and four. And that was it. And uh, it just fucking jumped, man. I went for it. I mean, because that's always – that's insane because, you know, I there was a p- time period when I was like, I want to import wines. Because, like, you're, you're right. It's like there's so much wine out there in the world. There's so much God. wine out there uh. in the world. And, and you know, we, we have a big con- conglomeratization going on right now. Um, you know, those huge companies. Yeah. Um, and so – like a lot of these small guys, they're just, just going to be lost in a book, you know? Um, and there's no one's going to tell the story, right? Because, cause, you know, you got to eat, right? So yeah. like – but like German wines are so – like you said, I would say 99.999% of people don't know about them in, this, in the For States. For sure, yeah. You know, I mean I remember – what I remember about German wines when I started in 98 was Terry Thies, right? Yeah. Um, and he was, you know, and, and he also helped with microgrower champagne, but like, but like it take like what you're doing is in the U S when we say boutique, we think like cult wine from California, yeah, yeah. that's real expensive, but like it's boutique. This is small production. It's, these are wines that you have to sell. You have to really kind of geek out to get, yeah. um, yeah. So, how did you overcome the no money? I mean, that's my thing. Like, 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 did you like, you know, because we had Adrian Chalk on. He had to mortgage his house because, because, because uh, Lalu, you have to pay her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, <laughs> you, you know, you have to pay her up front. Uh, yeah, a few <laughs> things I would say. One is that German wine is not, for the most part, is not is priced differently than Lalu, right? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> it was a smaller ticket yeah, to exactly, entry. Right. But you know, when you have at the time, I had one child. I think my. The second came along very soon thereafter. So here's the honest God truth. Uh, I got a little bit of money from my in-laws. Mm-hmm. Honest, I genuinely don't know, but it was like 20 or 30 grand yep. alone. Then I had some savings, probably about the same. But I also needed to live on that while I was building yeah, up, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. And then the, I sold – I had bought at Crush a good amount of wine. And again, it was just good timing. It was just like you know, you bought wine for whatever, 50 bucks, and it was worth $150 two years later. So I sold a lot of my cellar to finance it. Wow. And, it, and a lot of it was just kind of eating shit for a bit, right? It's like the first few years and my wife works and makes decent money. So you know, it was a – it's a team, right? There's yeah. a lot. All yeah. these things yeah. are like I started. Yeah. I'd start them from my own work. But it's right. like, yeah, to to not disrespect the amount of work because there were certainly nights where I would like work all day at Crush and when I was starting it, right. I'd get home at like you know six, seven, eight o'clock. Then I'd like you know whatever take over with Henry, my son at the time, and kind of try and help out. And then from nine to three, I would do von Bowden shit, and I'd go to bed, and then I'd wake up at six and do it again. And there was like there was. There was many That's a lot of sweat it's a equity. fucking lot, man. Yeah. And not the like but on the other hand, like the fact that I could scrounge together twenty, thirty grand for my in laws, like that's like that's not nothing, right? right? A lot of the fact that my wife could help out, like it's 
there's there's the luck part is a huge factor. Luck is, sure. I mean, I try and explain that to people too. Like, how do you know why I'm in this? And I don't, I don't know if I've, I've like. I dated a woman who went to Wesleyan and then we broke up and I kept hanging out at Wesleyan and then I dated another woman and like this woman best friend was this guy who was friends with John Cape and I met John Cape like like it had nothing yeah. I would I like like just weird shit yeah. like you know like there's so much luck involved in yeah, life yeah there is you know you have to yeah. be prepared but there's we we don't want to and like it's Stuff that you don't control that just happens. Yeah, for sure. And you have to like, you know, you do have to jump and you have to like recognize right. the opportunities, but you also need some like some tailwinds, man. Yep. You know, yep. and like it doesn't happen without yeah. those tailwinds yeah. for sure. Yeah. And and like you said, I mean, like how many people and just I love the humility, like because, yeah, your in-laws could give you 20, 30 grand, right? Like there's people whose in-laws can't do that. For right? sure. But but. You worked from nine to three for a while. Was, you know what I mean? So it wasn't dude. like, hey, I got this money. I'm just no, chilling. Yeah, like, was, I think at the end of the day, you have to work yeah. hard at this at some point. You got to yeah. get enough momentum. Like a plane has to get up to momentum or it's not getting off the ground, right? And then you yeah. can cruise. But yeah. like yeah. getting it off the ground, yeah. you, you humped your ass. Yeah. Man. And, you know, and they owned a good amount of the company and I, they, I bought it back from them at a good profit for them. So yep. it's like... And, you know, again, it's uh, the luck part is there, but also the integrity and the like, Yeah, I don't know, if always, I've always, always, I fucking mowed lawns. Dude, even when I had leukemia, I had a, I mean, this is the truth. I had a, what do you call it? Paper route. Paper route. And dude, when I was too sick to ride my bike, my mom would like drive me around and I'd sit. So again, it's always the help, right? It's yeah. like, I was doing it, but I also was in the backseat with my mom because I just like could not, after treatments, I could not cycle around. I'd throw the shit out. So you have to, I don't know, there has to be some like, some serious grit, but yeah. you also need the help. That's yeah, it. for sure. So what does Von Bowden mean and what's the philosophy behind it? Yeah, so Von Bowden means from the soil. So okay. Von is from and Bowden. Bowden means floor, but it's like people talk about when you're in the vineyard to say, das Bowden ist, the, you know, the soil is. that soil. So it means from the soil. And it, honestly, I wanted something that was like Germanic because I knew that was like the focus. And two, I wanted something that sounded kind of cool. Yeah. And a lot of German wines, man, or German words, there's a lot of like R's and W's and PF's in like really unfortunate places for the American, uh, <laughs> for the American tongue. So I was like... I came up with that phrase and I was like, that sounds fucking cool. It's like slightly aristocratic, like Von Boden, right? People often are like, oh, are you Mr. Von Boden? I'm like, I should probably change my name. You should. It's like definitely better than better all. It's like better, better call Saul. Stefan Von Boden. That sounds awesome. Von Boden. So that's what it means. But it, but I did actively and consciously not want to name the company after myself. I feel like a lot of importers, it's my import company, right? I mean, you know, it's It is what it is. I get it. On you the know, other hand, I do think so that like so selection. Yeah, I mean, that's the game, right? For me, I'm the least important part of this fucking story. My mm -hmm. job is to like bleed for the growers, but the growers, and this is not like romantic bullshit, but like, dude, at the end of the day, I move things around and I mark them up, and I spend a lot of my time and energy showing people that I fucking care and that I know and that I want to be there for them. But it's I'm also not in the vineyards. If of if I lose fifty percent of the harvest, like. I still have wines to sell. I can buy more from someone else, right? They're on the front lines and they to me are unequivocally and unquestionably the rock stars. And so it was like, uh, it doesn't need to be Stephen Bitteroff selections, man. I don't know. It's just like, maybe if my name was Stephen Bumbo and I would have called it because that sounds cooler. Yeah. But <laughs> it didn't need uh -huh. to be about me and it still isn't. Oh, man. Um, so what, uh, what does like a, what does like a trip for an importer look like? That's a great. So here's what it is. It's always having uh, 
it's flying with the same company so that you can at least get knocked up to like uh what is that economy plus okay. right man if i can because i'm i'm six one six two like oh god normally i'm in the back of the plane like next to the toilet but if i fly with you know the same i can so that's it you got like if you can get economy plus oh god for those overnight flights dude that's that's <laughs> critical Always order vegetarian on the plane. I just do not think that chicken is chicken. There's like no chance that chicken is more than 62% chicken. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, come on. Just do like, don't eat yeah, chicken served on a, that. like, don't do it. So always do vegetarian. Um, drink a ton of water. But basically the thing is they are incredibly fun. They're incredibly informative. You learn more in six minutes with a winemaker in the vineyard or in the cellar than you do mm. listening to this whole thing, even though this is a great interview yeah, yeah. and you're both very intelligent, so am I. But, like, it's just different. You feel, you smell oh, everything. Yeah. So so we – I mean, honestly, I go – I have a reputation in the company. I mean, it's only five other people, but of going very hard and forgetting about lunch. And people just be like, I kind of wouldn't mind, like, if I like coffee. I'm like, really? <laughs> we'll do fourth visit, though. And then after our eighth, we'll do. So I usually do a 9 a.m. visit. I do a noon visit. If I can, I do an afternoon visit. Then I do a visit at dinner. And then I go to bed at midnight to 1, skip the sparkle schnapps. Someone is giving you schnapps. You're, you're going to think it's a good idea. Because like you know you're like on a travel high. Skip the spargle, especially if it's spargle schnapps. What's what spargle? Spargle is uh, <laughs> what is that? Um, what are those long things that are coming in season right now? Uh, I want to say avocado, but it's not that. You know they like there's white ones and green ones. Oh, asparagus. Asparagus. Thank you. Good lord. Yeah. Spargle. Yeah. There was a big like spargle festival. The reason oh, I say this. Oh, dude. Schnapps. Spargle is like a religion in Germany. It, in Austria right now, as it comes out, it is like it's it's the equivalent of ramps, wow. right? People okay, are just yeah, like, right. oh, they're into it. They're not as boutique as ramps, but like, man, when you travel now in Germany, guaranteed to get three to five meals a day of spargel. Like, if you have that urine thing, like, oh man. <laughs> so there's like a spargel festival, and someone brought spargel schnapps, and like we're just like, man, at three in the morning, we're like, dude, spargel schnapps is exactly how this evening should end, and we learned the next morning that was exactly how the evening should not end. <laughs> So spit a lot, uh, try and get some sleep, but then it happens, then it goes again and that's it. And you just power through it. And when, that's what we were talking earlier. When you get home, these trips are among the most amazing, dehydrating, just kind of difficult physically, mentally, and emotional trips that you take. When you get home, we'd, like I do think I've lost a few days of my life. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand... There is not a day that goes by and not a time when I talk with anyone who works for me that I'm not like every fucking breath is a gift. The fact that I get to do this and call this work is a fucking blessing. And like you forget that and you start dying slowly. So it's like go hard, enjoy it, drink a lot of water. But that's how it is, you know, and hopefully there's some sun and wind and your the vineyards are steep so you can sweat a little bit of that shit out. But Riesling is like energy juice for me, like the acid, the low alcohol. I mean, man, I like it. It's 15 years, and I still, like most nights, I'm like, what should I drink tonight? Wow. Oh, for reason. Oh, for reason. I drew <laughs> rabbits. When I was an artist, I drew rabbits for 10 years, so I do have a- What's with the rabbits? So my first my first artistic crisis was when I was, uh, I was living in Vienna. Yeah. I was studying there. I did one semester abroad, and I lived with my cousin. And like the rabbit that's a Dürer, this old German artist, it's like, it's sort of like the I love New York thing for Vienna. Like it's everywhere. Okay. It's on posters, on like blah, blah, blah. And I bought like a notebook mm -hmm. and I was like, and I had my first like, what am I going to do as an artist? Like, I don't know. And so the the rabbit, the Feldhase was on the cover of this like drawing book. 
And I'm like, all right, I'll just draw this until like I know, like I'll study this, I'll work on technique, and then eventually I'll have like a good idea and I'll be an artist. And I never had that good idea. So for like 12 <laughs> years, I just fucking drew the thing over and over again. They became very big. And I did learn something with every single one of them. I think I did 40-some, maybe high 40s. And I would like sell them. And like it went really well. They're very big. They're about five feet tall and four feet wide. Oh, wow. And then like after number 48, I was like 48 is no better than 47. Mm. And I was like, I'm done. And then I just never drew a rabbit again. Yeah, that was it. Okay, I was just curious. Was, yeah, so. it was just arbitrary. There's something intriguing about it, but I'm not like a rabbit fanatic by any means. You know, I don't have pets. I have two kids. It's the same. Um, so you started out. You said you started out with four, uh, four growers. Four yep. Growers. So how many are in your book now? And how does how do you expand your book? Like, how did you how did you grow the company out? That is the hugest thing. And honestly, so you know, I think when you when you first do this, you're just like trying to keep your head above water, right? There's, there's, I like this. I think these people are good people. I think the wines tell something different, but otherwise you put your head down, you fucking work. Mm -hmm. And then after a few years, you're like, all right, you know, what if I'm also interested in this, but why, blah, blah, blah. So it's almost like then you get two or three years into it and you look back and you're like, huh, what is the thread that connects all the, or what is really important to me? Because otherwise I'm just fucking spinning my head and running around and like trying to make a dollar, right? Which I am, but I would like there to be some greater purpose. Yeah. I'm a, yeah. like semi-reflective human. And after a while, I was like, man, I like small growers. To me, that is people talk about natural wine or unnatural wine or commercial wine. And to me, I think there's incredibly valid arguments for all that. There's great arguments for abstract art and there's great arguments for for representational. There's great arguments for acoustic and there's great arguments for electric guitar. But like you need both of them. Like there's an appropriate context for all of this shit. The one thing that is unquestionable for me is the small grower. And what I mean by that is the person whose name is on the label is in the vineyard or is in the cellar and is making the wines and like – their son or daughter is working or the the family is involved in it and there isn't – I am dealing with growers whose fingernails are dirty and who do the labor and not with the vice president of exports for the US and the UK. It's just – again, this is not a qualitative thing. There's very good, huge estates. I just have zero interest personally in dealing with mm -hmm. it. To me, there are great, huge – biodynamic corporations now that are co-opting that and they don't pay their labor that well and a lot of the practices, how they really function in the world, I think are mm -hmm. probably not that emblematic of, of what the biodynamic, like, yeah. but you have a small grower whose kid is playing in the vineyard because they come with them and they're going to be very thoughtful of what they spray. They might not be biodynamic because there's a lot of politics around all that shit and the EU has their finger in kind of everything. But like they're going to make good conversations. They're going to make good decisions because their children are there. And this is probably a vineyard they got from their grandparents. And they probably want their children to work it, right? So it's – I'm very dubious about uh, about the power of large corporations that always have – or even medium-sized companies, right? They like have good intentions, but it's – you know. It's you have to follow fashions and you have to follow whims. And the truth of the matter is too, if you have a lot of product to sell, you almost by definition have to hit an average, right? It yeah. has to be every year kind of good enough, but not too crazy, right, right, not too much right. of this. No, 100%. And the small grower who doesn't can do – they can be their little indie film, man. Can, and if yeah. it only appeals to like 10 people, right. I have to find those 10 people and sell the wines. But I do think small producers like just make more curious wines. And sometimes they're not better, but they're just – they have a certain – 
human quality to them, right? And that's what I that's what I react to. Did I answer that your question? How do I find growers? Yeah. I mean, did like did your first four just start saying, Hey, Mike, I have a friend or No or, almost. or did or did people start hearing about you because your integrity or No, n- now it's a huge it's a, it is a still flattering. I'm like my mom and I are both surprised where I'm in business. It is a little bit surprising <laughs> when I'll email people and they're like, oh, I know Von Bone. I'm like, wow, it's, that's fucking cool. Yeah. Um, for the most part, no, though. I mean, yes and no, right? Most of it wasn't growers talking to other growers. Okay. Most of it was like, I don't know. I mean, back in the day. It was like, I'm interested in regions. And you just do the work. You drive around the regions. Like Hild is a, a producer I bring in from the Obermosel, which was this area I just like read about, mostly in German and like seen some weird maps, but I'd never seen a bottle of wine in the US. I'd never heard anyone seriously talk about this. It was just like, how in the flying hell, 10 minutes from Egon Mueller, from one of the most famous German winemakers, there's an entire region that is limestone and is made out of this Kimmeridgian limestone at that is made from this grape Elbling, which is supposed to be one of the oldest grapes in Europe, but I've never heard anyone talk about Elbling. And so I fucking drove there and just spent two days driving around and knocking on doors and tasting Elbling. And then found this one producer, a small family estate, Hild. And like, I liked them. And the wines were simple, but honest. And I just, I remember thinking, holy fuck, like I'm, my wife was already questioning a lot of my business decisions. It was just like, really? German wine? Like, yeah, I think it'll be okay. And then I was like, man, I'm going to bring in like Elbling. Like this is, I want to do it. I think it's important, but like I'm going, if I can break even with this shit, like that will be the goal. And it's become like incredibly successful people. You know, the family is soulful. The wines are good. They're well-priced. I'm also a huge fan of like the $20 bottle of wine. Yeah, You know, it's just like, man. Great. If you have a two thousand dollar bottle of wine that's good, it fucking should be. I think it's two thousand dollars. Hell yeah! Right? Hell yeah! But if it's twenty dollars and it comes from someone authentic and real, and the wine is good, and you're like, man, I want, I want average reality more than I want Technicolor fantasy. I want a fucking okay bottle of wine from a great human as opposed to like a great bottle of wine from a questionable human. Mm. And you find that you just have to get out and shake hands and press flesh, you know. The answer now is Instagram. That's how I find it now. Wow. Everything, everything's Instagram now. Now you don't have to press. You just like, you know, search friends. I don't know. The, it's crazy now. The amount of information you can glean on Instagram no, is just true. like ridiculous. <laughs> um, I mean, so what had you, was it Instagram? What had you go to like France? Uh, what type of wine do you, what, what region in France are you importing from? So uh, I have two producers, uh, well, three. The first one was Migo, who's in Alsace and Lorraine, yep, okay. uh, north of that. So, and honestly, it was it was through a recommendation of Pascaline uh, Le Peltier, mm-hmm. who's a, a good friend and a and a psalm of some repute in New York, one of the most brilliant wine minds I think uh, in the world. She's Certainly really in New smart. York, she's she's she can do smart. anything, man. And so she was like, you know, she knew I was interested in these style wines. Yep. And it was like, you know, these are people that are on the Moselle, which mm-hmm. is how you say it in French. Uh, the Mosel as a river starts in, on the west flank of, of the Vosges in Alsace and okay. it kind of like flows up. So this is, you know, okay, it's basically Mosel wine. It's just in, in France. And it's high acid, super sharp. And she was like, I don't know. It seems reasonable. My wife's family is from Alsace. And I and, you know, they're constantly like, really, you're importing German wine. Yeah, you know, I'm like, okay, they, you know, they look at me funny, but like they have some reasoning in Alsace. They kind of get it. Yeah. And then finally I got this producer uh, and I was like, hey, I like, I have a producer, you know, from this region. And they're like, really? I'm like, yeah, they're, never heard of them. Never heard of this place. And it's like, 
<laughs> okay, so deep in <laughs> deep in esoterica for sure. Uh, Cote de Tulle, Migo, and they had no. They lived two hours away. It'd be like you know. I have a producer in New York being like, I have a producer from like Philly. And I'd be like, Philly, what's, 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 Philly? Philly? what's Philadelphia? Yeah. So they had no idea. Uh, and then sh- the sh- I have one champagne producer and, and this came oh. back. Yeah, I have one champagne producer who makes amazing champagnes and they are affordable and well-priced. And that was my big shtick was just like, I love champagne. I drank a ton of champagne at Crush. Mm-hmm. It was great. And then I had to buy my own wine and not have people open it for me. And all of a sudden that faucet went really dry. And I like champagne, but a lot of it is seems to me to be slightly overpriced. I yeah, I mean, and you open two hundred dollar bottles, and it's like, man, like one, I can't do that on the regular, and two, I don't think it's that. You know, that give me mean. a good, like, there's some killer shit, like at seventy bucks, like killer. Yeah, fifty exactly. to seventy, you can find yes. some just like blind taste. Yep. Just fucks those other wines up. Yeah. To be honest, yeah, I mean, and, for sure, and they're more interesting, like you said, you know. Um, and the way that came about was that was a recommendation. So Volinviter, who's a producer of mine in the Mosul, he's mm-hmm. a Swiss guy, and he went to the Mosul to make wine. But when he started his estate, you know, he bought one hectare of vineyards. So again, like had to make a living, and so he imported French wines into Germany, and that's he had a little side hustle selling wines. And I was bitching to him one day about how expensive champagne was, and he was like, "You should go see these people. Like they're really good people, and the wines are like affordable." And I was like, "Sign me up!" And I just fucking drove there and introduced myself, and that's it. So. That's so cool, and then um, we also Austria, which uh, which obviously I want to say makes sense because dry whites, but so but also the U.S. You have you have like a few producers in the U.S. Yep, the U.S. portfolio, uh, the domestic portfolio, makes no sense, literally to me even. Yeah. Uh, so anyone looking for like logic or <laughs> you know a rationality will not find it. It's totally human driven. I. I meet people I really like. I think the wines are important or interesting or good or just like soulful. And if they want to come along, I'm like, it's very few and probably is never going to be a big focus. Right. And I like I I work so eclectically that like I don't have to make sense. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm kind of you know sort of like David Byrne. I don't know, like I stop making. It doesn't need to make sense because I'm not doing big volumes where like there yeah. has to be a logic. I don't have to be comprehensive. I have no desire to be. I'm not shopping for a fifteen dollar whatever Syrah from the central like yeah if I meet someone who I think is really interesting and if they're interested then it works and otherwise it doesn't so it's a hundred percent like kind of human driven which is kind of how it should be maybe but it's it's eclectic so I have yeah I have a great producer on Long Island who who's a good friend before but Mm -hmm. who just does soulful quirky shit and I was like man you should get that out there you know and kind of help them do that I have some Great producers in California, I have great producers in Oregon, but all very tiny and very person oriented. Yeah. Um, let's talk about let's talk about climate change and how that has um, how it's been a boon for German wines, if yeah. you will, to be honest. But yeah. let's talk about it. Yeah, yeah that's um, that's that's the honest to God truth. Yeah, a lot of. So the old saying with German wines, especially when you get into the, like the cold regions, right, is you'd have one to two great vintages a decade. Mm-hmm. Then you'd have whatever, three okay vintages. And then you'd have four vintages that like eh, were bad. And then you'd have one disaster. So German wine was always threading this needle of like just barely being ripe. And that was the kind of magic of them. When they hit that tone, 
You know, it's like with anything, right? When you're right on the edge, it's always like a little bit the most magical. Yeah. Uh, and that's where they were. And the relationship of German wines with residual sugar, the one, the sugar is irrelevant. Think about the sugar in German wine as how you deal with acid. The, the center of all German wine is acidity. It's unquestionably that. And so the question of like making sparkling, that's a way of dealing with acid. The, having a little residual sugar left in the wine, that's a way of dealing with psychotic levels of acid. Releasing wines later or aging them, another way of dealing with acid, right? So everything about the culture of German wine was how to deal with acid. And the dry wines, they would make them. The Mosul especially was very famous for dry wines, but they'd make them in the riper vintages and they would be, I think, to our palates, bracing, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And they would need time. I mean, the this, the speed at which this change has happened is almost inconceivable. Lauer's father uh, was selling wines two years post-vintage, right? This was in the mm. 60s, 70s, mm-hmm. and 80s, right? If you had a dry wine that was whatever, ate a lot high acid, very low residual sugar, you could, it's like biting into a lemon while your finger's in the electrical socket, you know, Oof. and having salt sprayed on your face. It's like, it's <laughs> biting, man. It hurts, right? It's zingy. Uh, and the way you dealt with that was you left it in the fucking cellar for three years and it mellowed out and then you sold it and people are like, well, oh, that's good. But we don't, like, there's no time is not, you know, time is money. So no one, no, that that piece of life that goes back to the cafe and kuchen, that doesn't happen anymore. It's yeah. go, go, go. But now with climate change, now literally almost every vintage is right in the sweet spot. You know, a lot of places were in the sweet spot and are being pushed out of it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Germany has the exact opposite issue. So it's gone from right on the edge to under to right now in the golden spot. And, you know, there's no one that is like thrilled with this, right? I love German wines and the quality, the renaissance that's happening right now has never been better. There's never a time I can say this with some confidence, even though most of the time I wasn't alive to experience it. But I would guess for the last 2000 years, there's never been a moment in German wine where they have made such great wines so consistently at almost every level, right? The dry wines now, they're not only better, you know, you'll talk to like the old timers are like, ah, German dry wines, too, uh, it's too sour. Ah. <laughs> And yeah, it probably was oftentimes. Yeah. It is, it's yeah. not that like now we just like sour wines. It's that the ripeness levels are higher and the acidity is a touch lower and the wines are fucking good. And these places that like were always on the edge, like the Mosul and even the Tsar, oh God, in the next like five, 10, 20 years, oh my Lord, these dry wines are going to come into some sort of like holiness. Now, it is what it is, you know? I mean, it's climate change. I think we'd, if we could go back to the, to the former, we would, uh, but that is the truth. A lot of the the rise in quality is that. I also though don't want to underplay the growers because oh the, yeah no no I think you know they, the, the return to the vineyard yeah. and the the actual work in the vineyard uh, is also a huge part of the change. Yeah. I mean, but it's it's across the board. It's in the Finger Lakes. Yep. It's it's you know it's 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 on Long Island. Yep. You, you get to achieve ripeness levels. Um, let's 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 pivot. Um, Red wines from Germany, because I know there's some really. That's also happening. I mean, some, that's another good, you know. So, Spot Burgunder, Zweigelt, Blaufrank. Let's just break those three down for people, kind of quickly. Yeah, yeah. So Spätburgunder, yep. is Spätburgunder. is Spätburgunder. is Pinot Noir. The Burgunder. Anytime you see Burgunder, you can you can replace Pinot. So you have okay. Weiss Burgunder, that is white Pinot, Pinot Blanc. Grau Burgunder, that is gray Pinot. 
Pinot Gris. Yep. Uh, Spätburgunder doesn't refer to the color. It refers to the harvesting later. Okay. They ripen later. So it's late harvested right. Burgundy, Pinot Noir. Uh, and so the relationship between red wine and, and German wine is complex. And a lot of this I'm trying to do research. I'm working on a book and I'm trying to kind of like nice. to understand this history. My interpretation of it is that red wines have always been a part of German wine culture. Yeah. But it's it was a fucking cool region. And so a lot of the reds would have been more in the line of like how we think about rosés, right? Drink them young. They're light and fresh and blah, blah, blah. And that was that was the red wine culture. And the white wine culture was really the van de garde. That was the fancy shit. And the reds were, you know, the reds were the rosés. You take them down. They're good on the patio. And that's kind of it. Sometime around the 80s, 90s, 2000s, things start getting a little bit ripening again. Climate changes. I don't want to downplay that, but I also don't want to pl- downplay the no, no, yeah, importance yeah. of the growers doing mm-hmm. more and more work. The thing that happened, you know, because of Germany being on the border of ripeness, there has been historically this focus on ripeness, right? The riper the wine, the grape rather, the greater the wine. And so when they first started making red wines, my my research and my kind of experience and some some just kind of guesswork is that like I think they basically were like, all right, the greatest wines are the ripest wines. And this is also parallel. It's weaving itself around Robert Parker and his mm-hmm. kind of worship of ripeness and new wood. And so they start in the 90s, start saying, all right, we can we can now really ripen Pinot Noir. So what we're going to do is get it super ripe because that's the best, right? Because we're on the border of ripeness. And then we're going to put a lot of new wood on because that's also the best. And so a lot of these wines from the 90s, the beginning of the the serious red wines in Germany mm-hmm. were very like oaky and a little bit hollow feeling because even super ripeness in Germany is not ripeness yeah. in Rioja, right? There's a difference. Uh, and it took them a little bit of time, somewhere around to me, the mid 2000s, 05 or so, they start realizing that it's not just ripeness. It's how old is the vine? Like how good is the vineyard? How delicate is the elevage? How good are the barrels, right? There's a whole science and culture of barrels, uh, getting good barrels that have a little bit of wood influence, but not too much, blah, blah, blah. So that is a huge part of the brew. And then the other huge part of it is just cultural exchange, you know? Young Germans going into Burgundy and working in Burgundy mm-hmm. and going to New Zealand and going to Australia and California and, and and vice versa, that there was this more experience on how to really do elevage. And so I think really in the last 15 years, Pinot Noir has kind of broken through. And to me, it's I'd be sh- I'd be shocked. And already it's happening that serious Burgundy collectors call me up and they're just like, you know, I'm still buying my Burgundy, but I'm getting a little tired of like $2,500 bottles and yeah. like $200 bottles of village yeah. level, yeah. right? Yeah. And they're like, and for, you know, for fucking $50 in German wine, you get something very serious from old vines. And so it's, to me, it's not a question of when, or not a question of if, it's a question of when. Is it like next year or is it two years from now? Most of the stuff I bring in, it's like it sells out pretty quickly because I think the wine is incredibly good and also because it's small production, right? And because it's well-priced. And that is, you know, it's not it's not a wildly complicated formula, you know? <laughs> like make it honest, yeah. make it good, affordable, and don't have that much of it. Yeah, like boom, yeah, you know? Yeah. Not high dollar yeah. and it's inefficient, but it's a good way of just kind of getting by, right? For them and for us. Yeah. Um, last reasoning study. I know you you weren't there. You were, you had something to do that weekend. I think it was in traveling. I think it was in you, Germany. You were, yeah, we were traveling. But uh, Robert brought like um, a German Chardonnay. Uh. I don't know if it was from your book, but like super limited, and uh, it was it tasted like white Burgundy. Yeah. And I forget who he said, but like there was a German. I uh, was pretty it Moritz. 
Because it had like a like a grape on the thing that like caricatures of it grapes. Like, or... I mean, there was yellow on the label for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. That's Mort's kissing. Yeah. Um, and uh, but I forgot who it was. It was a pretty famous Burgundy producer. I, I don't I don't want to misquote, but like who went who's been tasting like the Burgundy of Riles, and he's like, in the end, Germany's going to win. Like it's. And it's probably it's because of the price too is another thing too. I think yeah. Burgundy is such a luxury item. Yeah. Um, at a lot of like, like, you know, to find, to find a killer like thirty dollar village wine, like you 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 want that, but like it's you know, but like, why well, sell it for thirty when I could sell it for ninety? You know yeah, what I mean? That's like sure. Um, you know, I I think with all these discussions about like the rise of Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, or a lot of the Burgundian varietals. Like I, th- we want to. We always want to. Like we love hierarchies, you right? Because it's, like, it's, it's benchmarks and hierarchies, right? But I think it's useful, at least to like, to kind of try and step away. And again, I'm I get sucked into this all the time, and I just do it all the time. But like at the end of the day, the role of German Pinot Noir is not to beat Burgundy, and vice versa. It's, it's supposed to sen- give a sense of the place it's from. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I do think you can talk qualitatively. Yes, and just say. They are, you know, it's like you put fucking Picasso next to Matisse and it's like, to me, wine is a cultural product. And that's why Ooh. after studying art history, yep. I got into this yep. and no one would in their fucking right mind ever try to talk to you into like, Bryce Martin is a hundred points and this artist is 98 points. It's like, what are you, fu- like, what are you fucking talking about? Yeah. It would, no one would ever say that about music, about I like this for this reason, but you would never rank shit. But with wine somehow we're like, man, man. That to me, it's these are cultural expressions, and they have a context and a place. And like German, I hundred percent agree with you. And it's it is happening now, and it's already to some extent. By the time you know it's happening, oh, it's it's it's, it's, happened. it's happened. Yeah, that's, that's German wine has happened. Yeah. And I yeah. from 05 to be before that, it's always like man, German band. And it true for five, ten years, it was like man, you fucking bang the gong constantly, and you're just constantly like slam door in your face. And then some something uh, Steven, happened, uh, dude. The amount of times, I mean, dude. The amount that of times that's allocated now, bro. Amount of times <laughs> I'd sit down with people and taste like ten different rieslings and just have their fucking head explode and just be like, oh my god, one better, one oh, just like every wine is better than the next. And then I'd kind of like finish up my show and put the wines back in the case and like slide over the price and just be like, all right, what do you? And they'd be like. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. I already have one reason on the shelf. And like, that's all I can do. You know, and you'd be like, oh, my God, that is not that is not happening. It is German wine is in a great place. And to be perfectly honest, and this this comes up in my brain, because I think I think Burgundy has kind of gone too far. And it makes me sad that like some of these things that, you know, when I first got into it, yeah, 200 bucks was a lot to spend on a bottle of wine. But you could do that. And you had to like, you know, yeah, feel, but yeah was, you could do that. Yeah. Now you can't. And that's a, a fucking shame for culture. All these things. Right. It's the same thing with like. De Koonings and sculptures going into billionaires. It's like, takes it out of the public discourse. Yeah. And that's a fucking yeah. shame. So German wine, I'm happy its prices are going up because to some extent, especially with like a lot of Mosul producers, it was just unsustainable. Right. People are living right. hand to mouth. And right. like, dude, you have to pay a first person like a, not only a living wage, but like a wage that rewards their work and rewards more work and gives to some extent money as a, a sign of gratitude, right? Yeah, and it's like, for sure. thank you for this, right? For sure. So that's good when it goes too far and it's, you know, our kids are like, well, yeah, I'd sure love to taste German wine, but I can't, you know, yeah. that'll be, that'll yeah. be a fucking shame. Yeah. So, um, Riesling Fire, how did Riesling Fire, what was the inspiration Another yeah. crazy idea of yours? No. Well, yes. Here's how it went down. 
I was with uh, Klaus Peter Keller, who's a pretty famous winemaker in Germany mm-hmm. now at the time, but at the time was whatever, like famous, but not as famous. And we were pretty drunk and it was like two in the morning. And I was like, man, I'd gone to La Palais, this Burgundy Festival a yep. number of times. And I was mm-hmm. like, dude, it's cool. You just like all these people get together and you just like you open wines. And, and he said to me, he was like, listen, put together something like that. Like if it's going to be 10 people in a room with a bunch of wine, like that'll be fine. Like who cares? I, I don't want the grandiosity of Burgundy and a lot of the kind of pomp and circumstance. Pomp and circumstance is fine. I'm not getting qualitatively. It's just not my thing. Yeah. I was like, I just want to have like these dorks. German wine collectors are like old Burgundy collectors. They're stamp collectors. They're just dork out about the dorky shit Mm -hmm. for the sake of Mm -hmm. dorkness. Right. And I was like, let's get together people. And so he committed. And then I talked to a few other winemakers. I uh, forget who came in for the first one. I think it was Andreas Adam, Katarina Prum, uh, Thomas Hogg from Schloss Leiser, Keller. Maybe I'm missing one. I apologize. But And we did that. And I was like, oh, my God. I put up all my own money for this. And it was like 10K at the time, right? And it was like a significant amount of money for me. It was yeah. not uh, <laughs> It was not to be taken. And again, my wife is like slapping herself on the forehead. My mom's like, oh, God, here you go again. And like it just worked. You know what I mean? Like I didn't make that much money, but I got all the money back and mm-hmm. the room had a hundred people in it and people were fucking happy and it was awesome. And most of the Germans were like, we have never been in a room with so much crazy German wine, yeah. right? Yeah. The thing yeah. with collectors, it has and this is what I love about collecting. If you really get to someone who loves something deeply, it the money part uh, fades away. It's not about that. And so people would bring out wines that were like, they probably bought for five dollars and are now worth eight dollars. And they'd be like, I bought this and I think, and they'd share it with you. And it, it's less about how fancy this is and right. more about this is an experience I want to share. And I have the same problem. I have all these wines in my cellar, some of them expensive, some of them not, most of them not. But you don't want to open it on a Tuesday yeah. with no one. Right, right. It's You want to share it that with humans. Be shared. Yep. And so all these people, it just gives people a chance to share it with people who kind of get it and will be like, that's fucking cool. You have that wine at no one else cares about except for the 30 people in this room. Mm-hmm. And that is what Riesling Fire is about. It's just about getting dorks together who care deeply about this like culture of wine that's not better than any other culture of wine, but you just fucking love it in the same way you love folk music, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. And that's it. And so just threw it together and it worked. And that was kind of it. So the idea is always to try and make it affordable. It was deeply important to me that this was not like a $2,500 meal that you had to like bring another $2,500 worth. Like I don't roll like that. Uh, and so prices have always been about 300 bucks. It, and to, to give credit where credit's due, I also don't fly in the winemakers. I don't put them up, right? The winemakers contribute that. So like nice. my, my budget can be, mm-hmm. I need to cover, you know, I need to cover the table and the room and the Zaltos and all the other shit, but that's about it. So it can, it, there's people who come that, you know, are not of huge means, but it's important. And for that amount of money, you can. And like that, that to me is also, I think, a really important part of it. And you feel it too with all the shit Robert does with reasoning study as oh, well. Yeah. It's like, yeah. you know, you, there can be some ballers, but there can be other people who are just trying to get into it. And that, that is the fun, man. Once it's against monotone, it's like, yeah. oh, God, do I really want to have dinner just with me? Yeah. No, yeah. definitely not. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And to your point, like at the last reasoning study, like, People were like, oh, what, 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 what should we try, black wine guy? <laughs> and I was like, you know what I'm gonna try? I'm gonna try this 1976 Trimbach, which was probably three dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and it was in great shape, like for for like a forty something, forty four year old bottle of wine. You know, yeah. forty. I was like, 
that's what I'm going to try. Like you, I like, like you need to understand that was $3. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> wine and vinyl are a lot. I actually am probably one of the few people in wine that does not collect vinyl, but the connections are so yeah, deep, you know, it's like, it's yeah. just dorking out about this yep. like sliver of culture that's sort right, of irrelevant. Right, right. And that's almost the reason right. why it's so enticing. Yep, Do you yep. know what I mean? Yeah, it's totally. like not like, in the center. You're right. Literally. It's like, I was, I had skinny Pablo and I was like, you know what I, one thing I love about Robert soundtracks, like, it's like he plays the original song that was sampled by hip hop, right? So yeah. like, 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 so you said, like, you're geeking out on that, like, like, oh, you you listen to his albums out for this hook that Q-Tip caught yep. that became X Y Z, and then you hear the whole song, like, ah, oh, that's so fucking dope, you yeah. Know? So, yeah. Um, one last question. Yeah, man. Um, bottle of Riesling that started all was what? What, what was the bottle where you like? This is acid. This is it. If you can remember, because you've yeah, had so many. Yeah, I do remember some of the early. You know, at the 2000, 2005, mm -hmm. wines you could find. You know, widely were one of them was JJ Prume, who's remind, JJ Prume, remains yes. a canonical producer. And I remember drinking like ninety eight Burnkostler Bajduba Cabinet, and also reading a book called the Wine Bible. I'm, I think her oh, name yeah, is Karen, Karen McNeil. McNeil. Yeah, dude. People have asked me like, how I think that book for what it covers is unbelievable it's like readable it's funny it's you can read it you don't have to like really care that much about wine you can just have it on your shelf and like you drink something you look it it's up it's like a reference book yeah, yeah I love but it. it's well done it's yep. not just like yep. there's ten thousand hectares of muller turgon you're like is ten thousand a lot and what's muller like right. who cares right. but it tells the story and i remember reading the wine bible and there's some story about how like the people in the mosul the slate, these big stones and these really steep vineyards like falls to the bottom and the people like put them in buckets and carry it up to the top and dump it back down. And I was like, that is f like absolutely fucking insane. I love that. Yeah. Right. Uh, to yeah. me, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's just being an artist or what you just, the, the act like an irrelevant and, and courageous act of humanity that is just is going to be washed back down and then you just do it again. That's fucking life, right? It's just yep. like you get up and you do it. And at the end of the day, it might not have any meaning. That's okay. The meaning is just doing it, right? And I was like that and drinking the wine. And I was like, man, this is uh, – every breath is a gift. That's it. We're going to stop there. Steven, thank you so much, Dude, man. Thank you. Thank you. Thank um, you. Really appreciate you coming in. Tell people where they can find you, how they can be a part of what you're doing at Von Yeah, Bowden. so, I mean, basically every email address, info at vonboden.com, uh, orders at vonboden.com, hr at vonboden.com. Uh, they all come to me because I <laughs> there's not that many people. I'm the HR and accounting department. Um, yeah, so info at vonboden.com, just vonboden.com. That's V-O-M as in Mary, B-O-D-E-N as in Nancy.com. Uh, and I like kind of all the infos there. I'm on Instagram, you know, I don't know. I don't do Facebook. I think I'm on Facebook, but I don't really know how to do it. Yeah. I'm kind of Instagram or website or email. Nice. Or, you know, come, to, come to a Riesling study. Yeah, a Riesling come to a Riesling fire. study for sure. Or a Riesling fire. I'm going to have to come to Riesling fire next time. Hopefully we can do it this year. Yeah. All right, everybody. All you listeners out there, don't forget to check the show notes because that's where we'll have uh, – all the information on the wine we drank, links to cool stuff that we discussed, you'll find. We'll put all Stephen's links to the website and his socials in there. Um, until the next time, my friends, cheers to all the Mavericks, philosophers, deep thinkers, and Riesling drinkers. Peace. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something. You had some fun while you were here. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to. 
And if you want to be an insider and get special content, make sure you go over to blackwineguy.com and get on our email list. 